All right, so we are wrapping up this Summer of Psalms, the fourth summer that we have spent in the Psalms since we have, as a church have been around, and uh, Psalm 106 is the last in this book. And if you remember, or if you were here previously, you know that book four is, it has a theme around it, and that theme is maturity. And this one is really going to help us to see in some ways that maybe we don't quite expect that, that we maybe aren't as mature as we think we are, and that there are, there's some room to grow. So, if you were here last week, um, it is good to know that Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 are meant to be paired together. These two psalms, if you read them in one sitting, straight through verse 1 to verse 48 of Psalm 106, you will see that they are two sides of the same coin. And to kind of summarize and, and, and illustrate that as well as how it's different from last week, is that Psalm 105 was really all about God's faithfulness despite our sin, right? God's faithfulness despite our sin. Psalm 106 is very similar, but it's really more about our faithlessness despite God's grace. But it's not just part two from last week. It's not just kind of a continuation of what we talked about because this, like Psalm 105, the majority of this is mapping and showing a, like using a list to show a different texture to our relationship with God than we saw last week. The shape of our faithlessness, in other words, through these these references that the psalmist is, is, is incorporating into the psalm, including gratitude, discontent, jealousy, idolatry, distrust, apostasy. And, and what I'm going to kind of summarize this morning, we're going to focus much more on in, in this set or this list is foolish or unwise compromise. Right? The word foolish, by the way, you should know when I use that word, I don't mean like stupid or like low IQ. What I mean by foolish is a lack of skill in the art of godly living. That's my working definition of wisdom and what it means to be wise, and it's the, it's the opposite of what it means to live wisely. And so in this sense, compromise is foolish. So the, there's a pattern here in this list, in this psalm, but it's especially true in verses 34 through 39. And I'm going to borrow from this, this great C.S. Lewis quote to illustrate this. He says, uh, there are two types of people in the world, right? Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done, right? And I think he's right about that, except I, those are actually also two kind of steps in a process. That when we say, and I'm going to change thy to my to make it a little easier to, to hear, my, when we say my will be done, God says thy will be done, but not forever, and so this kind of left step and right step on the bicycle is what we're going to be talking about this morning around this theme of authority. Because that's, that's, that's what we're talking about when we say, my will be done or thy will be done. And it's going to be fun. So who's like really excited about this uh, optimistic, positive sermon, right? Like played the whore in their deeds. Like, come on, you thought the Bible was boring? You have not opened the Bible, Okay. <laughs> We're going to go there. So let's, let's actually refresh our, our memory on verses 34 through 39 because, um, yes, if you're wondering if this is still the Old Testament we're reading from and not a Game of Thrones episode script, um, you're, you're, it's understandable that you would, you would think that because it says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. Put a, put a thumbtack on that. We're going to come back to that. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. 
They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed in the idols, to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Now, like I said when I was reading through this, if you didn't catch it, this is referring to a period of Israel's history that is described and, and retold in Judges ch- chapter 1 through 3. It's when they are entering into the promised land and conquering the promised land, and God tells them, God tells Israel, on your way, put everyone to the sword. Kill everyone. Which sounds to modern ears a lot like genocide. Okay? If my saying that, or even just reading this psalm, makes you uncomfortable, good. That is very good. I want you to sit there in it. Because one of the most, you know, it's funny, I, I, we're in a very different time period, not just because of the pandemic, but I used to get questions or objections from people about theology, and now I do about politics. And that actually tells you a little bit about where our gods are as a culture and as a society, and that includes Christians, not just throwing stones, because we live in a glass house right now, okay? I say this because one of the, one of the objections I used to get a lot or hear a lot was, you know, if, how could a good and loving God order his people to go and kill and murder innocent people who are just doing nothing other than living in their land. Now, there's a sense of that that is perfectly understandable, and there's a sense of that that we need to really lean into. That this is referring to a period in Judges is very important. In the book of Judges, if you've ever read it, besides being remarkably depressing, um, there is a, there's a refrain, there's a chorus that keeps being said and, and keeps like introducing and concluding entire sections of the book of Judges. And those phrases are, first, that they, this, in, those, in that day, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Doing what is right in our own eyes. And that leads to, and is also kind of like this equivalent of doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And this cycle, this kind of back and forth on the pedal, of the pedals of a, of a bike, is tragically ironic, in part because the, the language that it's using of doing right what is in our own eyes versus what is evil in the sight of the Lord, the point of that and the reason that that imagery is used is because that the more God's people think that they see more clearly than God is the moment that they have become morally and spiritually blind. That the more, the moment that we think we see more clearly than God is the moment we have, we have become morally and spiritually blind. This is, I mean, in a lot of ways, this, this, this part of the, the psalm explains what we were talking about last week when, when Abraham is told by God to, to get set up for this, this covenant ceremony and he causes him to fall asleep and goes through the covenant ceremony himself without Abraham is to communicate, I will be faithful because I know you're not. He says to him also, your descendants, you will never see the promised land, but your descendants will. And they will spend 400 years in, in slavery in Egypt. And then he says to Abraham in his sleep, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, if you're reading Genesis 15, you can just read that and be like, okay, what is I don't know what that means. God is saying that it would be unjust for you to take this land now because their iniquity, their injustice is not fully realized. 
and I will not perpetuate one injustice with another. In fact, for four generations, your descendants are going to spend in a country that hates them and will enslave them. The reason that this is not genocide is because any example of, of human genocide that we see in the world, it is for the selfish benefit of the people who are doing the killing. God says, I'm going to allow, have my people be enslaved and oppressed unjustly. I will absorb injustice in order to not perpetuate until their iniquity is complete. He warns them as they're going into the promised land in Deuteronomy 12, not like, like their iniquity is complete and you need to be cautious. He says in Deuteronomy 12, when you conquer the promised land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, so that I also may do the same? Let me pause there. This is not just like, hey, I'm curious, what do you believe? What he's saying is, no, 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 do not seek to emulate them. Do not seek to imitate their practices. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So Israel knew this. When they went into the promised land, God said, be careful. Here's why I'm telling you to put everybody to the sword, because their, their iniquity is complete. Okay? Let me, I want to explain to you how incomplete it was, because when I, when I went... It's, it's one thing to kind of talk about this conceptually as an idea, and it's another thing to know that there's like historical data around this, right? We, we know that this region and the Canaanites at this time participated in child sacrifice. That was the iniquity that they're referring to. They know this because they found, and I'm going to be a little bit obtuse here, they have, they have unearthed bronze statues in the shape of a god named Molech, which is, uh, basically looks like a minotaur. And this, the statues include ones that have basically like their, their, their belly is distended. And so it, it's, it's, it's hollow so that you can put firewood in it and, and, and have a, stoke a fire there that superheats the bronze statue. Okay? The statue's arms are held out like this so that the sacrifice can be placed on it. This ceremony included everyone would have to have a drum to bang it loud enough to drown out the sounds of the sacrifice. If you can hear that and not at least have as an option, okay, maybe it might have been just for God to do this, I would, tell, I would say you live in a remarkably privileged life. Because there are places in the world where things like this still happen, maybe for different reasons and maybe with different statues. But let me tell you, it is only the affluent parts of the world, historically speaking, that have, a, have more difficulty with God's justice than have a difficulty with God's mercy. Okay? I say this so that we can grow in our self-awareness together. But it's not just a moral blindness, right? There's a spiritual blindness too. Verse 37 says that these so-called fake gods, false gods and idols were actually not idols. They were demons. 
Like there is a malevolent spiritual force prompting and cultivating that that we have to be aware of. That's a different sermon. I don't want to get bogged down in that, but it's real. Like as I'm saying this, I just want to, I just want to maybe even, even anticipate an objection that you're having because this is a long time ago, right? I don't think anybody in, the, in this room is going to be like, yeah, that's like, there's some possibility to that. I think that could be a good, uh, good, good course for human flourishing. No, nobody is in, 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 agree, nobody is in agreement with that. We think that we live in a different time, in a different place, and we're educated and civilized and enlightened, and insert whatever adjective you want to describe why you would never do that, and I would tell you two things. On the one hand, that's fair, right? Because we live in a time and place that has been so saturated with uh, Christian influence and the the, the gospel itself, and specifically the, the doctrine of the Imago Dei that sees all human beings made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and value that we shouldn't do that, right? We live in a culture that is saturated in that such that this would be shocking to our norms, and that is accurate, mostly. And if you're still here, you cannot leave the table as a result of what I'm going to say next. While we don't name our idols Baal or Molech, and we don't individually sacrifice sons and daughters to demons, we absolutely systematically pour out innocent blood, as it says in verse 38, in worship of gods called freedom and rights and liberties. And we do all manner of evil and injustice in their name because we are selfish and compromised and blind. A society that values bearing arms more than image bearers or preserves choice more than those who don't have one is blind to functional, systemic child sacrifice and flirtation with the demonic. Just that scripture. You may be objecting to this. and I know we have a diversity of opinion on a lot of things in our church, and that's really good and healthy. And, and you might be thinking or saying to yourself, that's not the same. And if you're not saying that to yourself, your nonverbals are definitely saying it to me. You might be saying to yourself, that's not the same, that there is nuance and a spectrum and circumstances to these ethics, that, that, that this is different from a bronze statue like that for that purpose. And I would agree with you in a, in a sense, right? In one sense, wisdom is absolutely situational, right? It is definitely situational. It has to, it has to incorporate circumstance. But how, like, how best to reduce abortion is, is a conversation that all manner of well-intended people can have and very much disagree on, and we're not necessarily saying that they don't bear the image of God. And that's an important one. And one of the symptoms, I'll be honest with you, one of the symptoms of a society that does right in their own eyes is one that has completely lost the category of wisdom to, uh, to actually engage in civil discourse. We conflate and reduce everything to a moral yes or no light switch on or off dimension, and we, we do not even question whether the difference we have with someone might be a difference in skill in the art of godly living. And those are two different things. By definition, though, a principle, truth, what is moral, what is right in God's eyes is not something that is malleable to circumstance. Let me, 
Verse 6 says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. The psalmist is saying and including that, that people who were alive before we were born and were doing evil before we were born, we own their sin too. Not just what we have done. Right? Christianity has categories for both individual and personal injustice as well as systemic. And, you know, let me just put this out there. If it's hard for you to swallow the idea that abortion could be a systemic injustice, you probably don't have any trouble swallowing the idea that racism is a result also of systemic injustice and vice versa. That there are individual and systemic dimensions to all of this. How we live in a way that flourishes our neighbor and loves our neighbor and lives faithfully to God. How is very important to have as a conversation. Now, let me check in. How are you feeling? <laughs> Super chill. Like, can we go back to five steps to a better marriage? That sounds easier, actually. <laughs> I get it. And maybe you've already, like, internally dismissed what I'm having to say, but I want, like, if you're uncomfortable, like, I want you to, like, that's actually the point I'm trying to evoke in us this morning, right? I don't, in your discomfort, I do not want you to take Brad's word for it here. Okay? I want you to take God's word for it here. And if my word is not aligned with God's word, you should question my word. Because that's my job. And that's all of our responsibilities. And so, if you, I just want to, as an open invitation that's like an aside from the sermon, if you're like, that, mm, Pastor, we need to talk, um, please tell me. And let's, let's walk through it. Let's walk through Scripture. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's roll up our sleeves and dig in. Because if we do believe that God is who He says He is, then we can find there are answers for how this is for our good. And we, we have to have enough trust in God that that's possible in His Word to do it. And frankly, and, and, and by the way, I, I offer that without any judgment. I don't care what it is that you want to talk about or wrestle with. Like, believe me. There are things in Scripture that will probably confront and rebuke me as well. We call that being human. And the only way to break this stalemate on pick any controversial topic out there is if we actually give God the authority to correct us and the permission to change our minds. So, okay, let's move on to point two because this is even, this is great, right? Okay, point two is God's response, thy will be done, which is basically like this section of, of, of the psalm is, is God functionally saying, okay, you think the Canaanites have your best in mind? You think that they have figured out how to flourish in life? Like, you really believe that they will love you as faithfully as I will love you? Cool. Let me know how that goes. And God, maybe even paraphrasing the renowned Richard Marx, basically says, wherever you go, whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for you. Whatever it takes or how my heart breaks, I will be right here waiting for you. That was written in 1989, and I, that means it's due to be cool. And I just want you to remember this moment so that when it comes, when Richard Marx comes back, I did it before it was cool. I'm making light to kind of help us kind of shake a little bit of this off. I want you, I want you to see that God understands what we often are blind to, which is that the grass is not greener in saying my will be done instead of God's will be done. 
But like the prodigal son, we often do not appreciate the father's love and the father, or the father's wisdom until we have exhausted the world's tolerance and the world's foolishness. Now, in saying this, I'm going to give my you know, uh, trademark disclaimer of don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the problem here is hanging out with your neighbors and having relationship or friendships with them. In fact, like that, that would be completely antithetical to everything that Jesus calls us to when he says that the second greatest commandment, second only to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the second is like it, meaning the other side of that coin, we really cannot love God if we do not also love, seek to love our neighbor. That would be antithetical, okay? The problem here is that according to Scripture, and this is something we don't really have an appreciation for because we're individualists, is that according to Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the problem is neglecting our worship and or our witness. Worship and witness. Such that when we do, we begin to functionally live as if we are in covenant with the world instead of in covenant with God. If you want to know like the fullness of what I mean by that, listen to last week's sermon. Deuteronomy 12, like, let me point this out. I read it from it earlier when it said, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Note that it's not saying don't worship other gods. There's almost kind of a benefit of the doubt that God is saying to Israel, like, I know you know that that's a bad idea, right? I'm saying don't even worship me in that way because the way that you worship backfills into our hearts, if you read, like, verse 35, when we read it earlier, it says, but they mixed with the nations. That's not the problem, right? And they learned to do as they did. Note it, it does not say they learned to believe as they did. It says that they, the problem was they learned to do as they did. They neglected their worship and witness. And that backfills, right? You may not realize this, but our liturgy on Sunday morning, everything we do from the call to worship to the benediction and everything in between, follows our core values as a church. Imago Dei, truth of love, gospel, hospitality, and shalom. It's listed on the website. Or you can come to the covenant membership class on September 17th because I go into a deep dive and talk about how and why we do what we do in worship because we don't just care about those things already. We want to care more about them and to be shaped and formed toward them. And that is because how we live, not just in, on Sunday morning, not just this, what we're doing right now, but how we live Monday through Saturday is also a liturgy. A liturgy, right? A liturgy is a, a value or affection-shaping rhythm. It is a habit. It's a ritual that we do with our hands that backfills into our hearts. And then we start to see through our minds, right? Weekly worship, what we're doing right now, is not just an expression of love for God. It is also a formational rhythm God uses to grow and deepen our love for Him and for one another, right? How's that connected? Doing what is right in our own eyes is a moral liturgy. It bends our worship back toward ourselves through self-reliance and guts our witness to the nations and our neighbors. The best example that I can think of this, so I own a Peloton now because I'm in my late 30s and I got to figure out some way to do it. 
And that's my particular excuse, I mean, way, strategy. Um, and so you get the, you know, the, the instructors on the screen and the, the, the gospel that they preach, so to speak, and it, please me, believe me, they, they preach, um, is one that is v- sometimes sounds very similar to the gospel that I preach, but is subtly different. And the wellness industry in general has kind of introduced into a lot of Christians' minds this idea that when God says, when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, actually, you know what you really need? You just need to love yourself first. And then, you know, when you feel like you're filled up with love, then go love your neighbor. How many of you get to step two? Turns out narcissism is a very deep hole. But it twists it in ways that we don't understand when we neglect our worship and or our witness. Now, in those moments when we have become compromised by our own foolishness, in those moments, it is actually a kindness and our greatest good to be, as it says in verse 43, brought down low. Because in love, God often allows us to experience the consequences of our, of our compromise, of our foolishness, of our, of our doing what is right in our own eyes in order to bring, back, bring us back to himself. Um, let me kind of root this very practically for us as a church. Like one of the things that, um, you know, we've been, if you're, if you're new here for the record, we, we, so you know, we only started regathering for in-person weekly worship in October of last year, so not even a year um, for a whole host of reasons. And as we've regathered, uh, we've been having to regather. I mean, it's kind of dull, but what I mean by that is not just like putting on the thing that is Sunday morning. It also means our coming back together as a community. And that's taken some work, and that's, that's hard, right? Uh, and what we, see, what, I, what we as a staff have seen at the table is the same thing that we've seen all across the country, which is if you were coming to church three or four Sundays a month before the pandemic, now you're about one to two. And if you were coming to church like one to two Sundays a month before the pandemic, we haven't seen you in three months. And there's a reason for that. And the biggest challenge that I have seen so far, and because some of you know that I've like reached out to you and been like, hey, how are you doing? Haven't seen you very often or at all. Maybe some of you, if you're watching the live stream right now or listening to it on, on the podcast, you know I've, I've reached out to you and asked like, hey, what can we do to help you with this? Because it's not, it's not something to like beat you over the head with and guilt you over. It's like, if we really believe what we do, that this is, for our, this is our good, where our good is found, then it's care, Right? But by far, the number one reason why we have, that we have heard for like, this is why our frequency has either diminished or gone away by like 90% is it's really hard to restart rhythms. It's really hard to restart rhythms. That's actually more profound than it sounds. Like, well, it's like, duh. I mean, I've got, we've got two kids, one who's turning one this week, and like, restart, what, what's a rhythm? So, I, so we get it, but also this is saying actually a bigger statement than we, that, uh, on first blush. Because the replacement rhythms during the pandemic that, that, that kind of came into the vacuum of what weekly worship we were doing beforehand, those rhythms are not neutral. They shape our affections and they shape our hearts in a different direction, whether that is uh, comfort or convenience or or self-indulgence or just ease. Like, it's actually 
really understandable that restarting rhythms would be hard because that's how rhythms work. They're liturgical. Statistically speaking, the more hopeless you are, the more polarized you are, the more stressed you are, and the more lonely you are, and each of those has a study that can correspond to them, the less likely you are to be in weekly worship. That doesn't mean that you show up here at church every week and every, like, all that magically goes away, right? It does mean that they are not overwhelming, though. And it does mean that those things are correlated, if not causative. And here's why that is. Like, here's why this is correlated. And this will be the last thing we, we do before we jump into the Q&A. But even though God responds to our, my will be done, with his, thy will be done, his faithfulness is such that he says, I will love you still. Let me reread verses 44 through the end of this because it's been a heavy morning so far when I hear about how much God still loves us despite how heavy this is. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and give glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And that phrase that ends it with, Amen, praise the Lord, transliterated, that's where we get the word hallelujah. And they're saying, the psalmist is crying hallelujah, and this was a psalm that, yes, despite the really weird Game of Thrones style type stuff that it ends with, this was still sung corporately as, a, as God's people in, in Israel. Like, it's like if we, you know, Danny, that's your next, you know, uh, homework assignment is, I want you to write a song based on Psalm 106. <laughs> cool. Maybe not. We have, I've had better ideas, okay? This is a total transformation, that God is saying, is describing in the last several verses here. Those who ignored God in their foolishness now seek God in their distress. Even the seeking is something that is prompted by God through his covenantal faithfulness. Those who hated God's people now have, a, now have compassion for them. The very people who, who oppressed and enslaved them, God's saying, I will stir their heart and their affection for you in a way that makes zero sense. And it is actually through them that I will use you to do the worship and witness that is my goal in saving you in the first place. He says, like, like God remembered his covenant even when Israel did not. He restored Israel for their sake even when Israel wouldn't live for his. In short, God, God is not done with those who are done with him. God is not done with those who are done with him. By the end of the sermon, you might be done with me, you may even be done with God before you walked in here this morning, and I want you to know God's not done with you. That doesn't mean He's going to like, you know, like a fairy godmother kind of float down in the air just because you start going to church every week, though if that motivates you, try it. Um, it means that even after all of our foolishness, even after all of our compromise, even after all of Israel's foolishness and compromise, He actually... Remember this psalm, the audience for this, for book four of the psalms, are Israel in exile. They're actually still in the midst of God's loving discipline after having sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. This God says in Jeremiah 29, 
Build houses in the place that I have sent you and live in them. While you are in exile, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take, like the, the repetition of sons and daughters there is not an accident. He says, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And the word we translate as welfare there is the Hebrew word for shalom. The holistic human flourish, not just a cessation of hostilities or, or, or an absence of conflict, but God's loving Garden of Eden growth and fullness of life. God's saying, okay, Israel, if you won't be my witness, if you won't be faithful to what I gave your father Abraham and saying, here's my blessing, now be a blessing to the nations out of what I have given you. If you cannot be a covenantal steward in this, and you won't share your blessing with the nations, okay, then I will literally make the nations your neighbor. I will take you from your home and put you in the midst of those who you are intended to bless. You might think that you moved to Boulder County, wherever you're from, in order to take advantage of the lifestyle that is the mountains, the liturgy that is recreation, the, the liturgy that is this... Frankly, it's an amazing place to live, right? It's been a while, so there's nobody in the room, but every once in a while, when I ask somebody, like, hey, wh why'd you move here? Was it, you know, what, what reason? You know, every once in a while, I'll get the very Christianese response of, like, oh, yeah, I just really felt like God was calling us here. And I'm like, okay, I can't judge, me too. But also, like, he didn't call you to the Democratic Republic of Congo. I want to give God credit, but, like, let's not blame him either. My point is that we live in a time and a space where our neighbors are all around us. The nations are all around us. And when we compromise our worship and witness, we make it, I don't want to say harder for God, but more complicated for God. And yet, his saving purposes cannot be slowed or stopped. He will do it with or without our cooperation. It just happens to also be a lot more fun when we do. He says, I will love you still. Okay, let me see the bajillion yes questions we have this morning. Okay, this says, uh, this feels like the people ordered to be put to the sword were not redeemable, which seems contrary to what I have typically learned and been taught about who God is. Not sure if you have thoughts about it. Maybe it's a balance of justice and grace. Great question. Um, like many things in Scripture, it is very important not to make normative what is unique in a point in time in history. This is, that, that is literally the only time in all of Scripture that God says to do that, and it's, it's something that is unique that is tied to the promised land and His covenantal promise to Abraham. There's a lot of theological like, details that, that, that go into that, but it is very clear throughout all of Scripture that Israel is never called to wage uh, religious war against anyone else ever again. That is not God's people's job and it is only because God said to do it, not because they had that as an idea and then sanctified it later. That is, so it's, it is historically unique and it's really important not to read what is unique normatively. Um, I will also say that, yes, God can redeem everyone and anyone, 
but he doesn't always. And then his justice is still a valid uh, and good response and holy response from God. We don't get to make that determination of who God redeems or not. He does. That's what prevents us from thinking we're, well, as my grandma would say, and she's been really popular the last couple Sundays, um, uh, getting too big for our britches. Okay. Next question. In verse 14, it says, God gave them what they had asked for, which resulted in horrific injustice. Is it correct that God's plan... Well, here, let me pause and actually turn to 14, just read that part way through. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness, and God put, and put God to the test in the desert, and he gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Okay. Is it correct that God's plan to eliminate injustice and make the world look like his kingdom is his, is his people acting out his will instead of our own? Yes. If so, can you help us as the people of God identify how to turn our hearts toward him instead of head, running headlong into our own desires? Um, it's a process. <laughs> Let me tell you this. I, I think part of our difficulties, we lack an imagination for this. Uh, I will always be affected uh, by uh, when Hannah and I were living in St. Louis, we were part of a, the launch team of a church plant back then. I was not a pastor. I was a seminary student at the time. And one of the two past co-pastors there, his name is Phil, um, one of our launch team meetings, he started off by saying, like, guys, I actually, I need to repent to you of something. And I need to ask for your forgiveness. And he went on to explain that he said, you know, like, we've been, we've been talking about trying to live differently as a community here, about, about relying and depending on each other and seeking God together and how that's very different as a community versus as individuals only. And he said, and I, I bought a, our, we just bought our house and closed on it, and it never occurred to me to invite you to speak into that decision. Buying a house. Like, how many of you are like, I need to ask my church what they think about this? That's how radical this is. Both that, now, that's an example of community, but it is an example of authority and, and vertically with God. Um, how did you, now I'm, gonna, I'm really going to open up a can of worms here, because uh, how did you choose the table as a church to be here? Was it because uh, you felt God's calling to, um, to and this church was going to help you love your neighbor better than you could on your own? Or is it because um, you really like smaller churches? Look, God uses bad motivations all the time to redeem, mine included. But like, let's think about this. And part of it is slowing down, spending time in his word, spending time in community. I'd encourage you to join a community group for that reason and praying and asking his people to help inform that. Okay, let me keep going here. Is it possible for us humans to define what is worthy of God's justice or not? Ooh, since we're not omnipotent, it doesn't seem like we should even try. The last few years has made me fearful of drawing any lines in the sand on any topic. Feels like we should just focus on loving our neighbor full stop. I wholeheartedly agree with this and also want to add just a couple of caveats. God says to love our neighbor. Okay, how do you do that? How do you steward and resource all of the things he has given you, including a vote, like including your money, including your time, including your focus and energy, is it watching cat videos or learning, uh, and I'm going to condemn myself and 
with this one because, not with the cat videos part, don't, don't assume. Um, like, Hannah is invaluable to me. Every time uh, there's an election, she goes and does all the research on all the candidates, including the county just judges, you know? Like, all the ones you're like, ah, yeah, I don't know, I'm just going to vote the party line on that one, maybe. Um, she does all that research. That's amazing. I rely on her on it because I'm bad at it. One body, many parts. We're complimentary in that. It's beautiful. I would just say and encourage, like, to answer the other part of your question here, is it possible for us to define what's worthy of God's justice or not? Um, let me tell you how much fear and trembling you should have when you seek to speak on God's behalf something he has not said in here. Um, that is part of the reason why it is important to understand and have a category for wisdom because there are things that do need our speaking into, but there's the difference between doing so in terms of thus saith the Lord versus thus saith Brad as best he can understand based on what the Lord has said. Those are not the same thing. And we're in book four, so it's all about maturity, right? Huge part of maturity that the church in the U.S., modern, contemporary-wise, we lack some epistemic humility as much as we lack a redemptive imagination. That means we lack a humility around like what is actually true, and we have a lot more certainty in ways we shouldn't, and we wanna add a lot less clarity in places we should. And we're, letting, we're, we're, de we're determining those things based on what is right in our eyes instead of what is good and right in his. So let me do one more here, because there's a lot. Um, what are the reasons at high level why it's important for believers to meet regularly on Sunday? versus watching online. Yes. Thank you. And this is someone who hasn't texted in before, so whoever you are, thank you. Uh, what are the reasons at a high level of why it's important for believers to meet regularly in person on Sundays instead of watching online? Um, because Jesus is our mediator, right? That means he's our high priest. He is the one that carries us to God. And, he, and they have said, do, you know, in that same book, of Hebrews, where that, that phrase comes from, especially in the New Testament, it also says, do not neglect to gather uh, together. There's not a category in the language, in the grammar, in the passage, theologically or otherwise, where that would not mean in person, point one. Point two, if Jesus is our mediator, mediator, there is nothing, everything about a digital experience is a mediated experience. You need to understand that. It's mediated to you by a screen, and now a screen has become your priest instead of Jesus, your high priest. I'm not saying that it's morally wrong. I'm saying that it has a very low ceiling on what it, is, what it actually is and should not be something that we do any more than we absolutely have to. And that, yeah, that is extraordinary circumstances aside. We did live streaming during the pandemic. We went 18 months, two weeks, and three days. Not that I was counting, but yes, absolutely I was. Between weekly in-person indoor worship hated it. I know you did too. It was miserable. We are missing out on so much. It's, it's like, like, I'll just say this. Would anybody here want to take a vacation free to a tropical beach? beach? How many of you would like be okay with doing that by watching a, sh a movie about it? Nobody. Worship should have the same, it's the same principle. So we get to do it every week. So 
on that note, <laughs> the, the, the beauty of God's faithfulness and the beauty of Him being our highest authority and not ourselves or what we deem as right in our own eyes is that when He says things like, you're redeemed, you are forgiven, you are loved, that doesn't depend on the strength of our belief to be true. This is something that, I, that like was, was landmark for me. I remember like when I first became a Christian, and, and I still struggle with doubt, but when I was struggling with doubt with a capital D back then, um, after graduating college, I remember being like, like, I didn't even know that I was assuming that God was only loved me if I fully believed it. If you suffer from that same malady that like God's love for you is dependent on how strongly you have certainty or assurance of that, this table is for you. Because this is where we have, not just in digital mediated form, right? We have embodied in things that you can handle and touch and feel. The, the, the bread that Jesus says on the night that he was betrayed, this is my body, it is broken for you. It is broken for you. Not, I will allow it to be broken for you if you believe enough. It's broken for you. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins, for all of your foolishness and all of your faithlessness. Even, yes, you, Peter, who are go who's going to deny me, even knowing me three times before the rooster crows again, yes, even you I have shed my blood for. And as often as you eat that bread and you drink this wine together, he says, you proclaim my death until I return. You worship and witness to the fullness and the beauty of the gospel. The good news that in Christ, you are loved. And even if you doubt, you are loved. And even if you fail, you are loved. And even if you struggle and you even do the stupid thing anyway, you are loved. If that's your hope, even a little, or you want it to be your hope, come and eat. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your covenantal love and your faithfulness, that you are steadfast in a way that we don't have categories for or imaginations big enough to grasp. Thank you for not being frustrated with us about that, that we're so stubborn and slow to learn. It might be that, Lord, you actually just love us. So I, I pray, Lord, that this morning we would feast on that truth and that that truth of your love would nourish us in ways that we can see, say to you, thy will be done no matter the cost, no matter what that means in our, to our worship and our witness. We pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen.